Hey everyone, Eric here. I'm excited to announce our newest show on investing at Turpentine, Sorcery by Molly O'Shea. Sorcery brings the conversations investors and founders have behind closed doors to light. Past episodes have featured Alex Kolodzic of AVC, Xander Oltman of Commodity Capital, and David Weisberg of 10X Capital, whom you might know from another Turpentine show. This is the show for investors by investors. We dive deep into topics like the significance of LPGP dynamics, portfolio construction, if SaaS is really dead, AI theses and predictions, and more. Check it out by searching Sorcery on any podcast platform today. Welcome to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, investor to investor. I'm your host, Eric Tornberg, an entrepreneur, investor, and co-founder of Village Global, On Deck, and Turpentine. Joining me this week is Aiden Senkit, founder and managing partner of Felicis Ventures. Aiden was the first product manager at Google before starting Felicis. Aiden was the original super angel before scaling Felicis into the firm it is today, and his immense success can be summarized into the fact that he's been named Forbes Midas List 10 years in a row. In our conversation, we sift through the nuances of why the generalist approach allows Felicis to generate more hits, why virtually all of Felicis' investments are narrative-driven, the secret ingredients that have steered the firm to repeat success, quality decision-making, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review. Let's get to the conversation. Aiden, you've been doing this for a long time, uh, almost uh, almost a couple decades. And, and so when you think about the evolution of the firm, why don't you trace that evolution a little bit and, and talk about how you guys have cho- chosen to grow and evolve that's maybe overlapping or different from some of your peers who started uh, in similar times or if you look at your peers today? Well, first of all, it's a dream come true for me. I'm really glad uh, to be doing something that I truly love. And it, it seems like I also don't suck at it. So that's, that's nice. Um, I feel like there was three things, different stages in the evolution of Felices. One is the first four years of Felices was kind of as a solo practitioner um, during the super angel era when the seed funds were just coming to form. Um, That was kind of like just proving the theory that something like this could work, especially for somebody who is a complete outsider to venture. Again, most people were very skeptical that somebody who is not from venture can break into venture. And then I think the second part is when we started raising institutional capital that's when things have changed a little bit. And then we've institutionalized like a company, maybe went from family and friends round to seed round. And I feel like the middle stage of that is when we basically were building reputation. And then I feel like the current stage that we're in, the third stage, is after we've established a successful track record and then we started optimizing for things like ownership. So I would say those were the three different distinct stages of Felices. I think the other interesting aspect of it is we wanted to do something different in venture. When you look at venture, a lot of you know the so-called new funds are actually splinters from older funds. And the strategy is not that different. So it's like, hey, we're doing the same thing, but maybe more nimble with a smaller team with like less amount of capital. New ideas don't come very frequently in venture. And we wanted to do something different. And that was the interesting thing. Like a lot of the things that we've done, like in investing internationally without opening office there, investing across m- multiple stages in geos without having specialists. I think we're going to touch on this a little bit, like the generalist approach. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that we've done, I would like to say that we have pioneered it. And, and you know, uh, and, and also like some parts of our tra- uh, strategy is a little bit unorthodox. 
we have a different attitude, like mostly venturers about, hey, can you have only one or two big hits so that you can have a very high loss ratio, but still be very successful. And we have a different attitude. We want to have a lot of hits in our funds and we've been mostly able to engineer that. So the idea is to create like same level of high return, but more resiliency with less risk, more consistently. And so far, the experiment has been working greatly. That's a great overview. And just on the last point, how are you getting more hits? Is it that you're just hiring better pickers? Is it that you're doing something at a structural level? I think part of it is really related to strategy. Look, I think what is really important is that the strategy matches the people that are deploying it. And so for us, we're all generalists. Uh, we all speak multiple languages. So being able to invest across a both range of industries and sectors and, you know, different geos, it's actually, you know, pretty natural for our team. Like we, we've been very comfortable with that. The idea here is that, you know, we've always done something that is a little bit anathema and venture, which is we like to diversify and have like at least so-called 40 to 50 companies per fund in a lot of different uncorrelated sectors and geos. And that in itself has been a great factor in us having a lot of hits because most other funds, the way they think about it is, listen, I cannot be a great picker in a lot of different things. So I'm going to focus on a very narrow area or niche or geo. But then what that ends up doing is it significantly shrinks your universe. And the way I like to use the analogy to explain it is imagine that you have, you're in the movie business if you're Disney, anybody from four years old to 80 can watch the movie and you're much more likely to have hits versus if you're a specialist and you do something like an NC18 or whatever, even from the beginning, your audience is so limited. So like even just to get the great results, you need to kind of like capture 90% of your audience. I don't right. know if like the analogy really works perfectly, but it <laughs> at least gets the idea across. What does that mean in terms of the types of people that you're looking to... To, to hire in terms of how are you identifying as a, you know, a general partner or a deal partner, how are you identifying who's going to be the right kind of generalist for, for, for you yeah. guys? I mean, honestly, I think this is one of the most difficult uh, questions to answer. And, you know, I would like to say that on that, like the experiment is still running as well. Look, I think I will start first with myself. I think there is this idea in venture that the only way you can be a successful venture capitalist is if you've been a VC before, and if not, like you need to be a, you know, I don't know, a VP of Google or whatever. And I was not, I mean, I was a very early employee at Google, the Google's first product manager. But one of the things that I found is like, there is this idea that you cannot make great investments unless you're a specialist and an expert in an area. I think if you're very smart and you at least like, for instance, obviously it's not like I worked in coffee shops and I'm yeah. investing in tech. <laughs> like I did work at Google, so I do know one thing or two about tech. But I don't need to be like a great specialist. Like we have a lot of biotech hits and none of us like have, you know, necessarily been involved in biotech. I mean, I did start my career in pharma. So the thing that I like realize is that I think understanding like what's going to be fundamentally a great area and what makes a great founding team and what makes a great company. Some of this is intuition. Some of it is that over the years, we've been able to find so many great companies that I think there is a lot more in common of those founders in different industries than going narrow in one sector. Um, so that's, I think, like a really uh, important factor. But like, I think for us, it's also, again, focusing on what we're good at and that is like identifying like great founders, great companies. And, you know, I mentioned the intuition thing. I think that's really important. But the last thing I will touch on that I found to be very important, especially starting with myself, is motivation and drive. I 
been like underestimated so many times when I was starting out, like many of the founders we back, that gives you this like really strong motivation to prove your naysayers wrong. So I don't know if many people talk about it, but like finding people that have chip on their shoulder, that yeah. have been underestimated, you know, for any reason, but who are very smart, have some unique insights and intuition, because I, I like to say that, again, motivation is something that you can't bolt on and intuition is something that you can't teach. So if you have no. those two things, I think everything else we can work with and we can train people, you know, we can refine their approach. But these two things are the key ingredients when we're looking for people for our team. Well, it's fascinating because you, you've also pioneered, um, you know, a big focus on mental health um, with, yes. with you know, some of the hires you made. And also you've been looking to invest there as well. Do you ever worry that, uh, you know, too much um, focus on mental health and maybe the chip on the shoulder might go away? Or how do, you, uh, how do you think about that? Kind of the right kind of motivation to build a company? Look, it's a great question. Uh, and on the mental health aspect, like one thing I will mention is that one of the other founding premises of Felices, when I looked at other successful firms, I saw that a lot of times that success comes at the cost of mental health for a lot of the people involved, right? Like the more competitive a firm gets, yeah. it takes a toll on its people. And because of the decision-making process or being able to call people saying only the strongest is going to swim, and that like put a lot of toll on people. And I wanted to do something different, which is very subtle, which is like, listen, we all have limited mental energy. If we manage to build a firm that's more like family and 0% of your effort is dissipated in internal competition and drama, and 100% of it goes to finding great companies, can that make an impact? So I feel like that was an interesting approach that we had and being friendly uh, and you know having a firm that like, hey, we're really here to support each other and, you know, being the first to be in the industry to support our founders and like go all in on that. It's been kind of our rallying cry and a key differentiator for Felices. So far, I think from all angles, both internally and externally, like this has been a great differentiator for us. Totally. Has there been any mental health companies that you've invested in or how do you look at that space from, a, from an investment perspective? I mean, it's been an area that we've been very interested in, and there is a variety of companies, whether it's like mental health in a com corporate uh, context, uh, mental health in terms of measuring it like individually, uh, mental health, you know, looking at like specific niche areas like teenagers and all of that. I just think it's a really big area. And I think the way that I explain it is very simple. The physical health aspect of our lives has been pretty much instrumented in, it's been like, I'm not going to say it's perfectly solved. But there is like blood tests, like all of that and, you know, a lot of operations and anything that's like physical, I think mostly have been like mastered. However, when it comes to mental, we still don't know many things. We can't work on people's brain, like we can't test on people's brains. And I'd like to say that everybody has probably some, have some mental affliction, but we can't even tell, like maybe I have some too, like 10, 20%, but I'm still functional. So I feel like this is much more of a like long-term multiple decades thing that given that it touches every human being on earth, it will continue being very important. And obviously companies that are dealing with it, especially during COVID, we have seen that like if you're doing anything related to stress or managing of it, uh, that became a pretty fertile area. And I feel like it's going to keep growing on that. And this is not an issue that's kind of seasonal. It's not going to go away. And I do see it getting much bigger in the future. And hopefully th that th those number of bets will grow as well. Zooming out, 
How much is it where you're opportunistic in terms of the founders are coming and pitching you and you're sort of getting a sense for where you're excited versus you saying tops down, hey, we want to do a deep dive in mental health or we want to do a deep dive in you know, generative AI. We're now going to look at all the companies in the space, market map the space, go look for the right one. How do you kind of think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's a really great foundational question because if you're a generalist firm, you have to be very careful about not boiling the ocean. So one of the things that we have is we are also very thematic investors. So everything has to have a balance. So in order to go generalist and have a lot broader purview, we decided that we cannot go like randomly, like review every single you know uh, founder and like inbound like reference uh, referral that comes in. And it's very important that we at least are educated and made up our minds on the markets, it's really, really helpful for multiple reasons. Number one, like you can't boil the ocean. So you really need to focus on areas where you have high conviction. Number two, interestingly enough, it's a very big plus for the founders because you'd be surprised by how many founders we meet that really appreciate the fact that we've really studied you know, the market, we have conviction, they're not spending their time to educate us. We already informed and have high conviction. So not only is it an important thing for us to make better decisions and like make our strategy work better, but I've also found that these days founders really appreciate it when you've done your homework, even if you're not like a born expert in that field, if you've done enough homework, if you talk to enough customers and mastered the area, it makes a big difference when you're talking to the founders. And so for us, I don't think it's optional. It's a key part of our strategy that we only spend time on things we've come up to speed. And this concept of prepared mind has been key to our investing. So how do you do that? Do you have different partners say, hey, you focus on this sector, I'll focus on this one, you divide and conquer that way? Or how do you, how do you develop a prepared mind internally? Not really. I mean, we have an interesting approach on this. I think one of the draws of Felice is, by the way, like we talked about how we hire people, but Honestly, like it's also really important to have something that differentiates you, that people have a motivation or reason to join you. And I think one of the biggest factors for people to choose to join Felices is that we don't put people into narrow swim lanes, right? I mean, that was like one of the reasons why I love doing what I do. And I feel like I had multiple rebirths within Felices. Like I came from Google and I made consumer bets. Then I did enterprise bets where I had no experience in enterprise. You know, I got into health. Again, I didn't have significant experience in health. Today, like I'm doing a lot of uh, investments in, you know, security infrastructure, AI. And you would argue like I've never done anything related to security or infrastructure, but it's been really amazing to be able to do that. So one of the key things that draw people to Felice is that we don't put them in narrow swim lanes. Um, but instead, like what we do is we try to like use the concept of convergence. Right. So like it's not about, hey, you can do research. It could not be enough. You can talk to a lot of people. It could be opinionated. You can have your own opinions. You could be biased. Um, you could look at the numbers, but you're not thinking about like those numbers in the cost context of reinvention. The numbers can change. Right. Like look at like how iPhone came when everybody thought a phone could be only a nine button phone. So I think what we try to do is we look at all of these things together. And by convergence, I mean you know, we, we're going to try to look at multitude of signal. So if there's like a lot of public companies with high multiples, there's a lot of market demand. A lot of customers are saying, you know, we're trying to buy something in an area. And a lot of people are saying this area is like really slated for growth and technical invention. Like that is a really great example where like, that's what I mean by convergence is that multiple signals, multiple perspectives are pointing in the direction of 
this is going to be an area that's going to be very fertile. I mean, AI is the most obvious example, but we've done very unobvious examples like mental health being one of them. We've been active in areas like defense. Uh, we're not looking for weapons companies, but application of areas we like into defense, like AI in defense, infrastructure in defense, drone, like more like not, you know, uh, offense technology, but like protecting people from harm and all of that. And that has been really great for us. It's been very sleepy until the Ukraine war happened. And now everything in defense is up and to the right. It's one of the few areas. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. Yeah. How are you approaching AI? Uh, because I have some seed investor friends who are who are sitting this one out saying, hey, it just doesn't look like there are many opportunities for, for venture scale companies given the in incumbent power. How, how do you think about that? I mean, look, I think the, e the answer to that is a little bit of our firm strategy. So everybody tries to think that they have the mental horsepower to figure out what's going to be it and what's not and they can predict venture returns. I think one of the biggest things that we learned, I think as a firm, we have about like 100 M&A exits and you know, 15 plus IPOs. I would say half of those, we probably had a good inkling and half of those we didn't. But because of our generalist strategy and being in the right areas, we've been positively surprised by some of these companies, but we knew going in that it was like high risk, high bad, but something great could happen. So I do think that it is a little bit short-sighted for people to look at it and say, oh, it's going to be like impossible to get venture returns. I think one of the challenges is now like to be a fundamental company in AI, the hardware investment and the dollars required is pretty high. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be in it. You can't be in it. I think you can still find companies. We ourselves identified at least six areas in AI, like sub-areas. Sub like there are some obvious ones like generate, you know, uh, generative AI, but... There's other stuff that is in the infrastructure, that is in security, that is in like vertical AI. So there's still so many different areas of AI that if you make enough bets, the way that we think about it is, listen, within those six areas, we're probably going to make at least a dozen bets too. And you only need like three or four of those two dozen bets to be really great for it to pay off for all those bets and more. I think that's the part people are missing is that I don't think this is the kind of thing that just because it's hot, you can go try to find one company and it's going to work. But if you have kind of like cover all grounds approach and you're very systematic and say, we've identified every interesting area and some of them are expensive, some of them are not, some of them are more obvious, some of them are not. Collectively, if you basically holistically go after it, the likelihood that you're going to find what's going to eventually work is much higher. And that's how we think about it as probabilistic. And that's why we like to invest across geos and sectors because listen, we cannot tell which exact one is going to be the absolute hit, but if we have done our job right and picked all the interesting waves and sectors, even if only a fraction of them work out because of venture dynamics of companies that make it, 
the multiples are so high, then it's going to pay off for everything else that we do. Probably to a better probability and less risk than others because we are more diversified than other firms. To that end, following the trends, just because I haven't seen a ton here um, from you guys, how did you guys play the crypto or Web3 wave and, and any reflections on that? I guess the short answer is we did not really. Number one, you know, by the time we started talking about it, there were already like 20, 30 venture firms in it. Number two, we didn't quite, you know, we looked at it and we're like, listen, we understand like it's so interesting and all of that, but we don't really get like how value is truly created. It sounded more like a supply and demand game than like values created versus like in AI, like you can tell if I can create an image that could never be created before or do something that has never been done before or do it at like one tenth, like that's real like value versus in like crypto, the premise always existed, but the companies that followed up on it sounded more like playing on a premise uh, that we couldn't really articulate and it sounded more supply demand. So we decided to stay off of it. And it was probably some of the most painful years that I've been in this business because the early returns, at least on paper, were extremely high. So it made us look yeah. like fools. But then afterwards, we were pretty grateful that we didn't kind of try to catch the wave of the 60th VC that ju jumped on the bandwagon without being a true believer. So um, all I know is that, look, whatever it is you're doing, not only do you have to understand it, but you truly have to like understand how it's going to work and why it's going to work. Otherwise, you're truly like playing a fool's errand. Yeah. We're cursing back to earlier part of our conversation. You mentioned how there are th three phases of, of Felicis today. One is the first one, solo operator. Second one, institutional capital. And the third one, you know, more of a proven track record and going bigger. Is, um, is your current form the final form or will there be a fourth phase? H how do you think about the future? I mean, I think these three stages are pretty good examples for people that want to start out in venture because I, I don't know if that's been captured. I think one of the other things that maybe like the benefit of being an outsider, I had to hack venture. Having never been in it, I had to design a formula in my mind of like, how am I going to like even out my odds of like succeeding in it, like form a team and have a strategy that's unique enough so that I'm not like fighting a battle on other people's strengths, but I find an original unique strength to ourselves. And I think the most important thing that you realize is a lot of times, you know, people splinter form big firms and then try to act like them, but it took them decades to be successful when you look at the existing name. So that's the reason why we went to three stages of like, first, you need to like prove, hey, does the concept work? Can you find great companies? Uh, then can you find enough of them to have a track record? And then only once you have a track record, I feel like then you can optimize for ownership. What ends up happening is if you're trying to do all of this at once, then they kind of cancel each other out and you might get great ownership, but in a subpar company. And in venture, the only thing that matters is whether you're in great companies or not. So I think that's the reason why this is really important. I think while we do this, we also have this like experimental mindset, you know, um, not this current fund, the one before we try to like split the capital into two buckets. What we basically realized at the end is, listen, the idea was really great to have what we call a focus fund to concentrate capital. But what we realized at the end is we are really, really good at like writing first checks. I think if you're intellectually honest, every firm, every team has some things that they're really good at. And what we realize is the more we add things on top of that, it dilutes our strength, right? So if writing first check is our, you know, uh, forte, then why would we want to do five other things at the same time? Just doesn't make sense. 
everything we do has a purpose. I think the reason why our font sizes change a lot is because when we made the transition from not just investing in companies, but leading the rounds that necessarily dictated to be at a certain font size, but in terms of like having newer products, like are we going to get into growth, whatever. At the moment, I'm not going to close the door on it, but we are benefiting so much from being focused that I would say that it's extremely unlikely that we would have product proliferation. And I think we're also at like a great font size. Everybody knows Matt. I know Matt. I know that, you know, much bigger growth from here on is probably going to be counter um, cyclic. You know, it's going to be, it's not going to have the desired effect to generate the returns we want. And it's going to be more like a drag. So I don't expect like huge changes from here on. Uh, I do feel like we kind of found our groove. And again, like I said, I think keeping things simple and I think one other side benefit of doing this, yes, maybe we might be leaving money on the table, but we've gotten a very favorable reception from LPs for not getting carried away, for coming up with a lot more new product, having like different Felicis funds and getting diluted and distracted and asking people to participate in all these different things when they're really backing us for this one main idea of like this main fund that is balanced within. And that's the beauty of it. Like you can get Felices benefits. We don't have like a Felices International. We don't have Felices AI. We don't have Felices Growth. All of it is done from one fund, which is the main concept of Felices, which is like modern portfolio theory. Like everybody wants high returns, but the bigger question is, can you do it consistently? and with less risk than the market. That's where the pro game is played and that's where we want to play and win. Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways you're you're very focused, which is, hey, we're, we're going to focus on, you know, first checks and we're not going to do growth or yet, uh, or, or, you know, triple down on growth or we're not going to do these other sort of, you know, investment products that some other firms are doing. But at the same time, uh, you're, you're not focused in the sense that, you know, within that range, you're going to do multi-sector, multi-geo, and um, and kind of uncorrelated way. And so the the risk there is, hey, maybe you get the trend right, but you don't get the the individual company. But uh, you know your results uh, say that you've been able to to do that thus, thus far, which is uh, pretty impressive. My, my guess is yours is a firm that works in practice, but not in theory. In in the sense that if someone else just off the street said, hey, I'm going to start a a seed firm and and just do all all sectors, all geos. And yeah. I'm going to be a smart generalist. It'd be hard to under- say, "Hey, what's your advantage?" But you've just proven it—you know, fund after fund after fund—and so it, it, it's working out. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's a really good point, Eric. Is that um, I think probably a sports analogy is like a good one. When you look at the people that won championships, like they will always have something that is very unique and not obvious. And you see, like one team practice it, and it looks like every team should be doing it. But if every team could do it, then they would but only one team does and like ends up winning the championship. So I think the way that I think about it is we talk about product market fit a lot, but nobody really talks a lot about like, um, like a VC strategy fit, like strategy manager fit. And so like in order to deploy a strategy that is very unorthodox and unique, you have to have the right ingredients. I think it's just really important. And one of the other things that most people don't talk about is that you need to be great at something that other people are not, right? You're not going to like join greats by copying other people yeah. because it's going to create some incremental stuff. And look, somebody's already great. Like, how are you going to be like even better than them doing the exact same thing that they're doing? Number one is difficult, but number two is also boring. Like, why would you want to do something that's already been done? 
you want to do something that's a little bit different. And I know the theory sounds different, but we put so much data around it now that everything, when you look at it, there are some things that make it difficult. But then if you master those things, those things end up being also the thing that makes it work, right? Like, so that's the kind of like, it's almost like a two-step process. Yes, in theory, it sounds like, hey, this should be like a 5% bet. But if you do make it work, it's so unique that it ends up being actually a key differentiation. And it kind of almost makes the formula work if you master that exception. Let's dive deeper into there. So let's say that I'm an LP and, and I, I, as an LP, can invest in, in any fund that, that I want. And you know there are a lot of great funds that are coming on the show as well. Sequoia, Benchmark, A6EZ, Kleiner, etc. How should I, as an LP, think about where Felicis situates itself in, in, in the ecosystem and, um, and why it should be considered you know, um, among one of the greats in that, in, that, in that capacity? Yeah. I mean, look, I think uh, I will explain it, but I do also have to say that it took us like maybe a decade to earn our spot yeah. you know, with the LPs early on, like when we didn't really have the track record, it was the premise of our strategy, right? At that time, it was more like a dream, and not unlike a startup. You know, yeah. first you have the dream and the mission, like very few people believe in you and like most others don't. But then once it starts working, then people are like, well, we don't have to question it anymore. The data is there. And then it's like kind of on fundamentals. I feel like today, the reason why LPs choose us is because of the fundamentals and more importantly, the consistency of it. Um, so when we say we're generalists, uh, basically every stage, every sector that we've ever involved in, um, and every area, like we have basically an IP or a major exit. So every single one without an exception. And not only that, but our results have been very consistent fund after fund, year after year. Um, these days, there has been so much proliferation in venture, which you yourself um, are familiar with. What the LPs are looking for is something that has durability. Yeah. So just the track record or the premise or the strategy is not enough. It needs to be, you know, uh, combined with, hey, do we basically have faith that this franchise has longevity, um, durability, and have they been able to prove that these results can be delivered consistently? And then I think the thing that is really helping us, honestly, is to not get carried away where, like, again, we're still a one-fund type of deal. Yeah. Um, so even we did grow the fund size, the fact that we're still one-fund it just makes it easier for people. So it's like, okay, if you believe in Felice's strategy, great. And I think the other thing is like, look, these people really do their homeworks. At the end of the day, uh, in addition to the track record, one thing that we've been religious about, even from our very humble early beginnings, is that everybody thinks that venture success is measured in returns. That's almost like so obvious that it's not even the number is that it's not a leading indicator. The leading indicator is your brand with the founders. And so from the very beginning, we've been... Uh, obsessed with our brand with the founders and measure it in terms of NPS. And because of that, like, you know, our ability to go to the LPs and like, listen, we can tell you what the future returns might look like, but here's how we can tell you, like, how we're going to do it with the strategy and elaborate. And then here is the founder NPS to support our brand among the founders, because it's not just enough that we'll find the companies. If the founders love us, then we'll close them. And so the thing that I think LPs have like grown to really love about us is that a lot of venture firms will have some wild success and they'll like rewrite history. They'll say, well, it was this and that. And of course, like after you've been successful, it's easy to tell the story, but very few of them can tell the story from the very beginning before it's achieved. And then later on, people see, oh my God, you've been telling us all along, this is how you're going to do it. 
and you've done it. And that's something like, I think our LPs really appreciate about us. And when you give some context on how you think VCs and you know, emerging managers, fund managers should think about kind of VC LP fit in terms of the, the product that they offered LPs and different LPs that might be better fits than, than others. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think it's different for every manager. Uh, at a basic level, it's a little bit of survivor, like asking a founder, well, what VCs would ideally make into your syndicate? I mean, the first question is, you know, can you raise the round that you're trying to raise? I think for us, there were some things that were really important, and I share this with my team. Um, it was the two non-negotiable things for us is that we didn't want any LPs, and that's one of the reasons we didn't grow too big that, hey, at any day, if we have to raise money from people whose values are not aligned with ours, life is too short. So the number one thing, we didn't want to have any LPs where we are literally only talking to them for the money, but for one reason or another, we might not necessarily see eye to eye on value. So that was really important. I think the second part, even from very early on, we only wanted LPs that understood and believed in our strategy and were not just writing a check blindly for the wrong reasons. Um, it's really important because look, you know, now it's a little bit more obvious. We have the data points, but you want people that are truly believing in what you do because just like everything, like a startup too, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days and you don't want people to change their mind in the bad day and ask you and distract you with like stuff. I'm like, listen, this is like a minimum 10-year game, 10-year um, horizon. Like things are going to go sideways and differently. And if you have people that don't truly believe in your strategy, you're going to have a really tough time. And you're going to have to get distracted explaining momentary changes or, you know, some changes in between. So those were the things that we, we thought like, hey, listen, these are non-negotiable. And I just want to be very humble. We are so lucky that we've been able to do it. Like, I'm not telling you that it was a done deal. And a lot of times we're like, are we going to make it or not, especially in early days? But now that like we've been able to establish our brand and record, it's something that I'm really grateful Honestly, like our founders, like this has been a great strategy because when we explain to them who our LPs are, it's a really big deal. For people that are joining our team, it's a really big deal. Um, so you're absolutely right that um, it's very important when people are designing their LP syndicate that there is at least some true north and they are the method uh, to the madness of how they're going to bring these people together. And it can't just be, hey, we're just raising this amount of money. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. To me, what's understandable is why you have such a great reputation with founders, because that is is measurable, and you kind of have a sense for the inputs um, mm -hmm. and, and and how they lead to the outputs. To me, what's what's harder to really truly understand is is why your uh, picking has been so successful. In the sense that you know, it's it's not like you're saying you know, some people say, hey, we have this special data approach, and I don't even know if it, if it works, but it feels like you've just kind of got you, you you and your firm kind of have the magic or something. So yeah. why don't you talk about like? What yeah. is the deal process at Felicis of like, what do you guys think you do differently, if at all, on, um, on the decision making in terms of how you operate as a team that leads to such quality uh, decisions? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the decision making uh, process is important, but I think the most critical ingredient for our success has been the strategy, which is the part where we discussed a little bit and you're like, listen, in theory, it might not make sense. It does make sense in the sense that the way that I think about it is, listen, people like to think that they're much better than they are. And, you know, like, hey, like I can pick a great company in reality. Look, it's really, really difficult. Yep. So the way that I see it is always like a race against improving the odds. Like if you go to the casino, 
If you have 55%, 60% odds, over the long term, you're going to win. If you're below 50%, over the long term, you're going to lose. And I think what ends up happening is people look at short things like, hey, I'm in a casino and I want a couple hands. Clearly, this strategy is working, but your process might be broken. So I think the thing that really works for us is, is so simple is that, listen, the only way you're going to be successful is if you choose areas that will be much bigger and fertile in the future. So you need to be future looking. You need to be an optimist. And if you choose enough of those areas, your odds of finding at least one or two is much higher. It's literally as simple as that. The way that we think about it is, listen, at any given time, there is probably like 10 to 20 big waves every year in the world that are going to basically result in some great companies. What other people are saying, oh, I'm going to optimize around ownership, whatever. But when I basically explain to you that, hey, a great company has nothing to do with that, it's only if you find a great company that's when the ownership and everything else starts coming into play. But what we said is, listen, the key ingredient of this business is literally only two things. Do you have an insight about how you can have better odds at picking companies? And then once you find those companies, you need to have such an incredible brand with the founders that those founders might, you know, should want to work with you. And I think these are the two areas that very few people talk about. Right? They talk about like ownership, this and that. I'm like, dude, that only matters if you find the right company and assuming that you're going to convince the founder to come work for you. And like, I don't really hear people talk about how they're going to convince the founders to work with them or what is their unique strategy. And so I think this is like, again, coming back to prepared mind is that we were from the very early on, like the thing that we really paid attention to, if some area is going to be like slated for great growth and can we actually imagine an exit? Like, I remember one of the crazy companies we worked on, just so that I can use an example, was Cruise. It became a billion-dollar exit. It didn't really have any revenues. It was self-driving technology. And I'm like, listen, the age of Tesla, Tesla is moving so quickly that majority of car makers are not going to be able to catch up and will be desperate to buy a technology that's going to put them on par with Tesla. And if self-driving becomes a huge part of it, it's going to be an indispensable technology. And it was the first of its kind. Um, it didn't really have any competition. Even when it was not working perfectly, uh, it still got acquired by GM for a billion dollars, right? So if I use any of the traditional metrics of like, do I know anything about self-driving? was completely irrelevant. Um, do I know anything about like ownership, all of that? We didn't have perfect ownership and yet ended up being a great exit because we essentially like pictured the right exit strategy and we picked the right area. Is that a similar story for a lot of your investments in that are they narrative-driven investments more so than kind of data-driven because there just isn't a ton of data at the stage that you invest? I would like to say that virtually all of them are narrative-driven. I mean, I would be lying to you if I said there is not also like data. Right. But the way that we collect the data, I mean, look, I think one of the most important things is that you can be like doing amazing things with data analysis, but if you're looking at the wrong data, it's not going to get you great results. That's why I'm like, when I hear these approaches of we're going to look at all this data and we're going to be better than everybody else, there is still a lot of intuition because you have to imagine a future. The data is not going to tell you the future. And, and so data-driven investment, you're going to cap out. Like it's not going to get you the insights. It's more like, are you a dreamer? Because the kind of crazy thing that happens, like you have to dream. But what we do that I found like very telling um, is we have really increased our efforts of understanding where things are going to move in a market. So in the, in the past, maybe we've been a little bit more oversimplistic of, okay, self-driving is really important, but now you know, we have 12 different data sources where we collect, ask the experts, 
You're going to spend money on this. How many of you like have projects that are on this? Are you going to spend more money? How many companies are you looking at? What is the company that keeps coming back at? And then we go ask founders. So one of the things that we're doing is we're doing the diligence work, which is very counterintuitive, before we even make the investment. And then signals come across. And so by the time we decide to talk to a company, we've done enough work to not only verify that the market is really great, but we also have an inkling of what is the correct company in that market. And then essentially we're using the meeting with the company to confirm or deny our inkling versus starting from absolute scratch. Oh my God, Eric, you're an amazing founder. Let's go and discuss your company and decide if it's going to be successful or not. I feel it's a much more difficult thing to do in terms of assessing the odds whether this thing is going to work or not, if that makes sense. That does make sense. If you were starting from scratch in 2023 and how the market looks today, would you take a similar approach or would you play, or for example, you know, you mentioned you've been successful because of your strategy. Why don't more people copy your strategy? Uh, if I'm starting my next firm, should, should I copy your strategy or follow the, what you guys have pioneered? What do you think about that? I feel very lucky that I started when I started because you could do things with very little capital. I mean, in today's world, there are so many investors and so much capital. It's very difficult to make that work. Also, I think people did copy us, to be honest with you. I mean, we were the first ones to come up with founder success that's been copied international. I mean, most people don't know, but like in my era, when I started, the top firms of the world were not making international investments until they, unless they had an office. Now, almost every major firm is making international investments. And I'd like to say that we've been there first. And I think we've been the data and people are like, wait, we don't really need to be in this continent to make bets, right? Like when you look at like, you know, and like another great example, and recent saying like, hey, we're never going to touch health and they have a bio fund, you know, <laughs> like, I, you know, they were like not skeptical and all of a sudden they have an AI fund, you know, they have an American dynamism fund. And so... <laughs> These things happen after the fact, but not that many people that can say, hey, listen, here's something that nobody else is doing. I do think, though, to answer your question more directly, the answer to what you're asking today is probably something different than what I started with. Because it feels like everyone is specializing. Exactly, right? right? So I think the, the big thing is you got to be able to do something that if not nobody else, most people are not doing. And it has to have some unique insight in it that's going to let you like generate results. But if it's like incremental, if it's like obvious and like other people have already like done it, like number one and number two, like it has to be a good fit. If I try to say, hey, Eric, you know, like tomorrow I'm going to get into podcasting and whatever. Like, I think Harry is a good example. Like, I'm not going to go compete with Harry. Yeah. Like he's been like putting like thousand, ten thousand hours into it. Yeah. I don't know if I can be a great podcaster. And I put like probably ten thousand hours to VC now. So I know like how to do it. Like, I think again, like in the beginning, it's going to be really difficult. So you really have to find a niche where like you have enough time and enough opportunity to work out that niche. But if you're going against somebody else's niche where they're already very strong and establish that brand, again, I'm going to go back to this concept of odds, probability, yeah. your probability of going against that and like being successful, it's got, it's a lot lower. So that's how I think about it. It's always like, hey, what are the odds of that happening? The odds for somebody else might be very low, but for you might be very high because yeah. you have a unique ingredient and motivation and whatever it is to try like some unique strategy to work where some people might scratch their heads, but again, it could be like your key to success. Totally. Let's talk about your team and how you operate as a team. You know, we yes. had ben, ben Horowitz on. He talks about how, you know, 
him and, and Mark are CEOs and yeah. they have a very clear sort of governance structure. I'm curious how you think of your, your, your venture firm and what's kind of the optimal uh, sort of governance model or, or you know, architectural model for how you should be structured. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we have a very unique system of our own. You, you also ask about decision making. So everything is debated. It's unanimous, but that doesn't mean that there cannot be dissent. We definitely score things. And in fact, uh, we decided to do that multiple times because first impressions um, can sometimes change if you do a lot of work. So we found a lot of ways and refined it so that one of the things that we we pay attention to, and oh, like a couple things. First of all, we do like that decisions are unanimous. That doesn't mean that everybody's like crazy about it. Some people might still be conservative. But one of the things that we found is like this has a really important purpose is that, you know, it's clear that not every company we invest is going to be great and some of them are going to fall on hard times. By doing this, we're basically like preventing people from saying, hey, listen, I vetoed that deal. We made that investment anyway. I'm not going to help you. So if something goes sideways, everybody's motivated to not just spend time on companies that are working, but companies that are not working so that we can do a really good job without draining like you know, energy from the team with drama. I think in terms of like how things work, I would say we do have a clear leadership structure in place um, that always asks for people's opinion, but it allows us to keep moving very fast and be very decisive. So it's not like, oh my God, everything has to be decided, you know, by five people for every single thing we make. Like whether we're going to have an office or not, whether we're going to have three offices or like we're in the city, all of that. A lot of this like takes input, but like we move very quickly. And I think that's where like the clear leadership uh, allows you uh, to do. But then on the other hand, when we're making investment decisions that everybody's voice is heard and is unanimous and there is a very established process of being able to like take people's input into consideration, like has great benefits. In terms of the other structure, I would say that we're probably closer to benchmark than other firms. It's not perfectly cool, but everybody has like very attractive carry. So the other thing that we found is that everybody in the firm and not just the investment team, but everybody else, they should think like owners. And I think like this is really important because I would like to say that the other thing that Felicis has like evolved is we have a true platform team. We have a research team. We have founder success. We have like a people partner. We have a community partner. Uh, we have a content uh, partner. So I think these days, like, you know, VC has also become full stack. So to be able to do what you do, if you really want to be like one of the main franchises without having like all these functions is much more difficult. But what we can do is like do things with like one or two people versus 20. And I think if you didn't compensate them and if you didn't give them enough incentive, you would not be able to do that. And the biggest thing that I learned in this business when I started, I asked a lot of managing partners, say, listen, what's the key to success? And I think the only thing that I found to be consistent is if you treat people like owners, they would act like owners. Because it's a 10-year horizon, yeah. it's very difficult to find anything else. But if they have skin in the game, and if they can truly participate in the upside, then they will, they will do their absolute very best. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and how about you personally? You know, Ben Harwood said that he's not as focused on investing these days. He's more focused on running the firm, and he doesn't think he's close enough to the, to the deals anymore. Uh, to be to be a great investor, um, but it seems like you're still pretty pretty active. How do you think about it for yourself? So the quick answer to that is I am very active. I don't think I'm going to slow down. 
I feel like I found my life's work. I love what I do. I would never stop. Like it's the, the world's best job ever. I'm not doing it for money. I'm not doing it for returns. It's truly like, I don't know, it's like being Indiana Jones. Why would you stop looking for treasures? Like, I'm going to continue looking for it. And like, I'm going to like, hey, listen, we ran out of land. Let's go like search in the depths of oceans. We ran out of oceans. Let's go to Mars. Look for treasures in Mars. You know, like I'm never going to stop dreaming. Like I feel like I truly found my my calling. Um, also, like my parents, like my mom is still not retired at 80. You know, I think one of the most important things is to have a purpose in life. And I feel what I do at Felice is not just about the money, but it's my life's purpose to find amazing founders, to back them to be able to have a glimpse into the future as a result of the companies. And I think that's why the other things follow, but not vice versa. Like it's not the money, it's not the title, it's not the glory. I just truly love this job. I truly feel like this, this job and this role like allowed me to show the world that I'm capable of doing something that people didn't expect of me. So the big mission that we have with Felices is that everybody that's in Felices we try to not put them in a box and say, listen, if you have imagination, you want to do something crazy, not just the founders we back, but our team, you can do stuff. And the fact that, I mean, you're probably like, no, Dasha, but the yeah. founders pledge and like a lot of our greatest things came from people, the most unexpected people in the team. So if you're asking me like why you're still doing it and what makes you come to work every day, like with excitement and a little glimpse in your eye, it's what I just told you about what I do and how much I love it, but also how much I love our team. How much it makes me happy when people do something they didn't expect, people didn't expect, and yet they come up with a crazy idea and it works within Felices. And, and like, I love it because it's something that cannot be bought with money. Yeah, that's well put. Sp speaking of Dasha, let's transition to founder success because you guys have done a lot of surveying about what your founders care about and you know what founders want in, in their VCs. And, and so many VCs are trying to innovate on so many different dimensions of the, of the founder experience. What have you learned really moves the needle and, and, and what do uh, founders really care about getting from their VCs or, or these you guys? So I'm going to start with an analogy. So I remember a couple of years back, uh, I was invited to this dinner with a Michelin three-star chef. And I'm like, chef, this food is so incredible. What's your secret? And he told me something very simple. If you pick the world's best ingredients, you don't have to do much to it. <laughs> and I think it's a lesson that I learned at Google that we were searching in an age where everybody else was trying to add more bells and whistles. And what people didn't understand is they weren't doing that to make the product better. They had to do that because the product itself was not great. So the bells and whistles was their way of like, hey, if we add the bells and whistles, will it get better? So one of the things that I have to give Dasha a lot of credit. So when we have the same approach, to like, what are we going to do for our founders? We basically like did something completely different. We're like, listen, doing what other people do, like we're not going to do that. We're not going to copy anybody. But what we're going to do instead is truly ask them what is the one meaningful thing. And when we talk to them basically over and over again, it took us a lot of time. They were not initially very free to admit it, but they all at the end said, look, this takes a huge mental toll. And the one thing that would really help us is just more mental health, whether it's coaching, whether it's peer groups, whether it's Anything, like anything that can relieve the stress because I know that it's very difficult. Like when we look at these founders, oh my God, your company is valued at this amount. You have these people. Why would you be unhappy? And it takes a huge toll. Like these are not normal things. Companies are not supposed to grow 10x year over year and like the ones that are making it really well. And so when we, once we understood that the key stress of a founder was mental, 
right? We're like, we're going to basically put everything into helping them in that one area. And what was beautiful about it is that because we took the work and we finally found the truth, it was something that other people did not take time. And so we were one of a kind. That was also really important. We were not the third VC to discover it and say, hey, we're going to be the third, fifth, or the 17th VC. We were the first. And so it had a huge impact on us because the founders are always asking the question too, is like, why would I take money from this VC? And a lot of people's answers are so similar. Like, why would you choose this firm against the other firm? Their argument sounds exactly the same. So it allowed us to change the playing field and say, you know what? We're going to do something for you that no other venture firm does. And we truly believe in it. The founders like have used it so much and we're seeing it work. And so we're very, very happy that it's something that you know we're doing and we're going to keep doubling down, tripling down on it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I wouldn't have expected uh, it in the sense of I would expect it something like, hey, you know, the right introduction to the right customer or helping me close my round or something that's, no. that's uh, you know, a point in time business critical at the same time. If, uh, you know, if stress gets too much, then that becomes, uh, you know, business critical, of course. A hundred percent. Not that we don't do those other things, but, you know, one thing that I have to say is, listen, I've been, you know, raised with the discipline of like looking at the data at Google. And I think one of the things that people don't do enough when they're talking about decisions or strategy, they don't really explain how they arrived at that. So even before we did this, when we were doing NPS survey every year, we always asked the founders, like, what is the number one factor when you're choosing investors? You would think that the one that helped me hire the most engineers and all of that, but in reality, it was trust, which is also related to mental, right? So the biggest fear they have in their mind is that the investors are not going to be on the same side with them when push comes to show. It's not like how many intros you made. It's not how much you help. At the end of the day, that's kind of like more tactical. But the biggest thing is like, can I trust you? Will you be on my side when things are not really that great? And so what the mental health and the founder plate sends a message, we're not here for the good days. We're here to support you in the bad days and the good. And so that's the key thing is that None of this was a surprise and none of this was like a miracle. It's just we've really done our job is getting data and the data was so consistent. And so that's the thing, like, you know, we're doing everything for a reason because we knew like how to ask the right questions and spend time on it. And we truly like found the thing that matters. And I think the same thing happens. Like if you know to ask the right questions, get the right data, it makes decision making that much easier. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, gearing towards, towards closing here, who are a couple other investors or a couple other firms that you've really either learned directly from or, or admired and, and uh, taken from from afar? I mean, look, uh, I mean, I grew up reading like about the big firms, right? Like, I've, uh, again, I've seen Sequoia in action because they were investors at Google. And then like I read like E-Boys. I don't know if anybody even remembers that book, but it was the story of Benchmark. Look, I mean, some of them I know in person, some of them I don't necessarily know in person, but I think the other thing to be said is I really studied this industry, like before I even started. And this is again, why I come back to like, when you ask how do guys hire like GPs is that you really have to do your homework. And I always looked at like who innovated and who was the absolute best in a category. Like I always like to like mention the same thing when I was starting out. I'm like, look, when it comes to competitiveness, it's hard to beat Sequoia. When it comes to like equal partnership dynamics, it's hard to beat, you know, benchmark. When it comes to like prepared mind, it's hard to beat Excel. Like they always keep finding companies in the middle of nowhere. 
before anybody else found. And then I think when it comes to like creativity and conviction, it's hard to beat Founders Fund, right? Like they did like insane things when everybody's like, what is Founders Fund doing? And then those bets ended up being really great bets. So at the end of the day, I'd like to say that those four firms set different benchmarks that I think I tried to learn from, but I tried to get to those levels without necessarily copying them and then finding like a unique ingredient that didn't exist in the grades you know, without copying them. And so far, again, luckily, the formula is working, but uh, it's, it's nice to at least um, to have found our niche. Because you're such a student of the craft, let's say we're having this conversation in 2030 about sort of the state of venture. Do you expect, uh, you know, major changes or, or, or more kind of incremental, you know, the people that are still on top today, you know, Sequoia's benchmarks likely will still be on top then. How do you think about the, the venture landscape? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there are a couple really quick comments to make. Number one, um, I think one of the reasons why we are focused on early stage is I think the toughest part of this business is when you don't have a lot of data. And that part, I don't really see getting automated. And also, that's the part where the human relations and trust has the biggest factor. So I, I feel like I'm not going to be replaced by AI or robots anytime soon. I think the second thing is like, so if you ask me, Aiden, like when you have meetings at Felices, what is the number one true north for Felices? Is learning and adapting rapidly. So when I started, I'm like, listen, we're starting from a much lower place compared to all the grades. But I do believe in one thing, which is it's not where you are in the mountain, but it's the, the trajectory or the slope. So if you can keep engineering the slope, and I think I cannot tell you like in 2030, which firms are going to be there, but I can tell you one thing for sure, and that is, the leaders of 2030 are going to be the ones that learn and adapt the fastest. And what I tell my team, we can get everything wrong, but we cannot get learning and adapting rapidly. Like that's our one big thing we have to be world-class at. So this is our way of engineering our odds of being in the Pantheon in 2030 uh, from today. So that's, that's something we're working on and at least how we're thinking about it. That's a great place to, to wrap, Aiden. Thanks so much for sharing your learnings with us today. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for having me on again. Great questions. Thank you. Hey, it's Eric. There's no shortage of tech and business podcasts, but few actually give you a true and regular dose of the future. The A16Z podcast is the exception. It's a lighthouse for founders, breaking down the most important trends in technology and business. Struggling to keep up with the pace of change in AI? They just spoke to top builders from OpenAI, Anthropic, Roblox, and more. Wondering what on earth is happening up in space? They just dropped a series on the satellite economy or questioning whether recent salary transparency legislation will cause clarity or chaos. They just broke down how companies can not only survive, but thrive in this new environment. Host Steph Smith sits down with some of the world's most influential people, movers who have a track record of being both early and right, like Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, Nobel Prize winning astrophysicist John Mather, and A16Z co-founders Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So go ahead, eavesdrop on the future by following the A16Z podcast on your favorite podcast app and tell them I sent you. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify.